And I have a question for you. If you ask people on the street, what does God think about you? What do you think people would say? People would undoubtedly have a whole myriad of different answers. Some people may say, God's mad at me. Others might say, God has given up on me or God is disappointed with me. Some would say, God loves me. Others might say, God's frustrated with me. We would hear all kinds of different responses. And today I want to look at this great question, what does God think about you? What does God think about you? We've been in a series over the last few weeks looking at the minor prophets. We've called this series Smile because there's so many great passages of scripture in the minor prophets and they, they make me smile. I'll tell you what, I was reading, reading these passages a few months ago and I said, we got to call the series Smile because Every time I read these passages, they, they make me cheer up. They, they make me feel good. And uh, Zephaniah is no different. Uh, the minor prophets are a portion of scripture in the Old Testament. They make up about a fifth of the Old Testament. It's the back end of the Old Testament. And you'll know you're there when you get to the guy's names that are hard to pronounce and hard to spell. Then you'll be like, I'm in the minor prophets. The minor prophets are, are not minor in emphasis. They're not called the minor prophets because what they said was less important than the major prophets. They're just shorter books of the Bible. And, and some of them are only one or two or three chapters, and so we call them the minor prophets. Um, a lot of times we don't read the minor prophets because um, they, they are uh, passive scripture that are that are. That are um, kind of tucked in the back. They get hidden between the Gospels and maybe the Psalms and the Proverbs and things like that. But God has a message in and through every book of the Bible. Do you believe that? God wouldn't have put it in the book if there was, was not something significant about it. So today, you probably haven't heard a whole lot of sermons from the book of Zephaniah, but can we open today to Zephaniah chapter 3? Because I want us to look at this ancient, ancient book. And the prophet Zephaniah is challenging the people to turn from their sins and to turn to the Lord. But in a book that has a lot to do about judgment, Zephaniah also includes some passages about what God thinks about us. What God says about you. And in Zephaniah chapter 3, he shares with us five things that God says or thinks about you. The first is simply this, I am with you. I am with you. Look at Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is with you. Uh, he uh, is in the middle of us. He is among us. God is not far off and aloof. God is here and now. God is with us when people are not. People let us down. People disappoint. People take off. God is the one who was always faithful. He's always consistent. He's the one who is with us 
And in Matthew 28, Jesus promises that he will be with us even to the end of the age. In other words, he will never abandon us. God is with us. That's why over in Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul said, Don't worry about anything, but, but through prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Have you ever read that Bible verse and thought, well, that sounds great. You know, don't worry about anything. It's much easier said than done, right? Well, one of the, one of the emphasis that, that the Apostle Paul's talking about over in Philippians chapter 4 is, is just, he's reminding us that God is always with us. Listen, how are you going to be less anxious? How are you going to stress less? How are you going to relax more? You remember that God is the one who is with you. God's with you. God is always there. Even when you don't feel God, God is always there. In John chapter 14, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. And I love the book of Genesis because Genesis 39 illustrates this so beautifully for us in and through the life of Joseph. Joseph is that, that, that epic hero of the end of the book of Genesis. And um, it says in Genesis 39 too, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man serving in the household of the Egyptian master. But then a little bit later in Genesis chapter 39, verse 20 and 21, um, it, it says the same thing, but it's a different situation. L look at this. When the master heard the story, his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me. He was furious and he had him thrown into prison. But the king's prisoners uh, were confined. Where the pr king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him, and he granted him favor with the prison warden. I mean, you know, why is that important? Well, in Genesis 39 2, everything's going great for Joseph, and God's with him. And at the end of Genesis chapter 39, everything's going bad for Joseph. He's in prison now, but guess what? God was still with him. And here's what that means. That means that God is with you in the good times and the bad. Did you know that today? Listen, one of the reasons you can put your chin up today, one of the reasons you can get out of bed in the morning is because God is with you. God is with you when things are really, really good. God is still with you even when it feels like the world is falling apart. God is with us. And Zephaniah begins this great epic promise here in chapter 3 by telling us that God is the one who is with us. But it gets even better. He moves on and he says, The Lord God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. The mighty warrior who saves. In other words, God says, I will save you. I will save you. Now notice that he's, God is described as a mighty warrior. And I love that because it takes a mighty warrior to save us. Amen? I mean, for you to be saved, God had to be almighty. He had to be big. He, he had to be bad. He's a mighty warrior. If he was anything less, I don't know if he could have pulled it off. But God is a mighty warrior, and he is in the business of saving. The mighty warrior who saves. And to be saved means to be rescued 
from our sins. And so God is the one who rescues us from our sins. Uh, You may think, well, pastor, I've been really bad. That's okay. You know why? Because God is the one who is mighty to save. God is the one who can redeem fallen, mistaken, screwed up people and can save them and allow them to enter into his spiritual family. He says, I will save you. And I love that word mighty because, it, boy, it takes the mighty hand of God to do so. Um, Jesus, the name Jesus actually means God saves. Did you know that? Is that a great name or whatever? I mean, like, is that appropriate? Like, you know, in the plan of God. I know that Mary and Joseph didn't pick the name of Jesus. The angel told them. But, but what a great name. God saves. Jesus Whenever you hear the name Jesus, think God saves. He is the one who is mighty to save. And Jesus came to save. In fact, we can't be saved without Jesus. Jesus' whole purpose in Luke chapter 19, he said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. That was the mission statement. That was the purpose of Jesus from the very beginning. And when we are saved, then God begins to redeem us and and we begin to experience his freedom. Because to be saved means to be liberated. It means to not be under the control of sin anymore. Listen, God wants to save you, not just so you can go to heaven when you die, but he also wants to redeem you from the pressures and the problems that we have here on this earth. And we can live under the bondage of sin uh, as much as anything else. Uh, He's a deliverer. God is a deliverer. He, He says, I will save you. He wants to deliver us from feelings of unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred and addiction and bondage to drugs and alcohol and pornography and so many other things that can weigh us down. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who delivers. That's why we need him so badly. And Zephaniah promises, I will save you. What does God think about you? God says, you know what? I can save her. I can redeem him. It's never too late for God. Zephaniah moves on though and he says, I, I delight in you. Look at that third phrase there in Zephaniah 3.17. I delight in you. He will take great delight in you. Is this beautiful or what? It says he will. And anytime the Bible says he will, that is a promise from God. So, so this is, this is uh, with great certainty, the prophet says he will. It's not like kind of implied or something that might be a factor or something that could happen. He will Uh, Zephaniah says, take great delight in you. And here's why that's important. Because it's easy to believe that God loves you. But I want to ask you another question. Do you believe that God likes you? Because I got some family members that I see at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I love them. But I'm not sure if I really like them. You know what I'm talking about. There's a difference. There's a difference. 
Some of you work with some people. You love them? You may not like them. God delights in you. God likes you. God wants to be with you. God gets excited to be with you. He delights in you. He delights in you. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't just put up with you. He he loves you. If God was an artist, he would paint a portrait of you. If God was a songwriter, God would write a song about how wonderful and how great you are. If God owned a computer, there'd be a picture of you that would be on his home screen. God, God really likes you. If God had a tattoo, it would be of your name. And actually Isaiah 49, 16 says that he does. He says, look, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. God really likes you. Now listen, if this really began to take root in our spirit and in our heart, how would it begin to change the way that we see the world? How would it begin to change the circumstances that we feel? How would it begin to change the way that we felt about our spiritual life or the way that we looked um, at the universe? If we really believed and we really practiced this, this idea, God likes me. God really enjoys my company. God really likes to be with me. And the reason he loves to be with us is because of Christ. And it's what Christ has done in us. Without Christ, none of this would be possible. But in Christ, everything is possible. How does God delight in us? How would it change the way that we worship? I mean, would it, would it begin to change the, the way that we sing and the way that we pray and, and, and the, the, the way that we come to church and, and the way that we maybe read scripture during the week if we really believe God likes me? How, how would it begin to change the way that we gave? Uh, when we brought tithes and offerings, if we really believe God delights in me. Um, how would it change your prayer life? How would it change so many different things if we just really begin to think about this concept, God delights in me. Uh, so what does God think about me? God says, man, I love you. I, I delight. I delight in you. And he moves on and he says, number four, in his love, he will no longer rebuke you. That's the NIV, but... The New Living Translation says it like this. With his love, he will calm all of your fears. Did you know God's in the business of calming people down? Have you ever been really upset about something and then you prayed about it and then you started feeling maybe a little bit better? Or you were pushing the panic button, but then you took a minute to think about your favorite verse of Scripture? Or, or maybe you were extremely discouraged and upset, but you came to church and you worshiped the Lord and it began to calm you down. Well, it is with his love, he will calm all of your fears. He will quiet you with his love. 
God is in the business of, of, of calming us down. It's his love that nurtures and takes care of us. And I was thinking about this in terms of being a dad. A few years ago, my kids were little and they would cry, you know, especially when they were like preschool age. And Gina always had that mama's touch. I mean, she could just like hold a kid a certain way. She could feed them. She could change their diapers. I mean, man, she just had that motherly intuition. It's really amazing. I never had any of that, you know. But one thing I did learn when my little boy Zane would cry, I would pick him up. And oftentimes I wouldn't know what to do. But I would start to make noises with him. And sometimes I would say, And that's all it took. And he would start to giggle and he would laugh. And he would just think that was the greatest. I mean, he may have a dirty diaper and he may be starving to death, but all of a sudden he's laughing like crazy. He's having a great time. I did that with him for a few weeks and then we left him with the babysitter. And I, I noticed before we left one day for, for a dinner date, the babysitter picked up Zane and he got right in her face and he said, I was like, my kid's learning things. This is good. <laughs> Did you know God knows how to calm you down? God knows exactly what you need to hear. God knows, um, God knows exactly what you need. God knows your needs even better than you do. You may think, oh, I know my needs. But listen, you don't have anything on God. God knows more about you and he knows more about your hurts and your pains and your struggles than anybody, than anybody else. And God, God is in the business of calming us. He knows when we need a kick in the pants. He knows when we need a shoulder to cry on. He knows when we need um, the words, I believe in you or you can do it. God knows what we need to hear. God knows what's going on in our heart, in our mind. And that's why we turn to God. Maybe you've come to church this morning and you're like, man, I'm, I am really hurting and struggling. And, or maybe you've come on another Sunday and what we've talked about has been exactly what you were going through. Did you know that, that that's the work of God? That's not by accident. I, I've actually had people ask me after church if, if their spouse had maybe given me some sermon notes to talk about on a particular Sunday, you know, like, um, like it couldn't, it couldn't be that what I'm struggling with and what I'm going through would be exactly what we would talk about at church. No, that's God. That's God. God knows your needs. God knows your hurts and your struggles. And that's why we love him so much. Finally, he says, I celebrate you. And this is perhaps the most interesting of these five things here from Zephaniah 3.17. But we'll rejoice over you with singing. Now there's over 500 verses in the Bible that talk about singing and worship and music. But what's interesting here in Zephaniah 3.17 is it talks about the fact that God is the one that is singing. Because most of the time in the Bible, it's about us singing to God. But did you know that God sings over you? 
And his song is a song of joy. His song is a song of love and celebration. It's part of God's enthusiasm for us. This is not like a lip sync song. This is like a heartfelt singing. God sings over us. Now, singing is an expression of joy. Singing is an expression of love and excitement. That's why most songs that are written are love songs, right? Because they're, they're songs that the people like to write about things that make them feel good. And, 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 and uh, enthusiasm is a huge part of songwriting. It kind of reminds me over in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, if you know the story, the son asked the father for the inheritance early. And he goes and he squanders all the money. And then when he doesn't have anything left, he comes back with his tail between his legs and he asks the father to take him back. And and he expects to be rejected, but the father instead runs to him. He puts a ring on his finger, and then what else does he do? Yeah, he kills the fatted calf, and they have a huge party, don't they? And there is singing, and there is dancing, And there is festivities and there is excitement. That's what gets the older brother all all upset. He doesn't want the younger brother to, to come back into the fold. But the father in Luke 15 is is an image of the heavenly father. And the way that the father loved the prodigal son is a picture of the way that God loves us. And God loves us, and when God thinks about you, I think in heaven there is singing and there is dancing. It's just like the prodigal son. It's just like the parable. God is the one who is singing over you. God is the one who is enthusiastic and excited about you. Um, That's why we should not live by our feelings alone, but we should live by what we know to be true about God. God is the one that's rejoicing, man. He's celebrating. He's he's enthusiastic. God's crazy about you. God is your greatest fan. Um, Greg Luganis was the Olympic diver. He's considered um, the greatest diver in Olympic history. He won a bunch of medals in the 1980s. And he was just almost perfect. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen him dive before. It was a few years ago, but he was a, a rock star of the Olympics um, back in the day. And they ask him, how do you always, how do you always deliver? How do you, how do you, how do you make these spectacular dives? Some of them were really high, you know? And he said, before that he would jump, he would always remind himself that nothing that he could do would make his mom love him any less. And when he thought about that, he jumped off that diving board and he would win the medal. It's beautiful, isn't it? You know, some of us are on the high dive of life. We're about to jump off. We need to remember God's great love for us. The reason that you could make the dive, God's crazy about you. God 
delights in you. God is singing over you. God is crazy about you. He's the one who saves us. He's the one who delights in us. He's the one who calms us down. He's the one that watches over us. He is God. He is God. And that's what God says about you. Let's pray together for just a moment.